Let's pray. Lord, we're standing here under your word. We're so thankful for it. We're so thankful for the hope and the encouragement that it gives us. We want to learn from Abraham and Sarah and even Abimelech, but more importantly, Lord, we want to learn from you. We thank you for how this word shows us you, points to you, reveals you, shows us your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus. And so I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see your glory here this morning and that we would be shaped by it to better reflect you in this world to each other. I pray that your word would do its work, that you would do your work through your word. And I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Really good stories uh, so very often have plot twists. Um, After all, no one really wants to follow along with a story where everything is predictable and happens exactly the way that you think it's going to happen. Plot twists happen when things don't don't go in the directions that you expect, and, and really good plot twists very often happen right before the end. Like, right before the runner crosses the finish line, he stumbles and falls. Or right when Frodo finally makes it to Mount Doom, he can't throw the ring into the fire. Real life, which often tells a story of its own, often works in the same way. And that's, that's pretty clear in today's passage. Right before Abraham and Sarah finally have their son, finally, finally, finally have their son, Sarah gets carried off into the collection of some pagan king. And if we didn't know how, how the story ended, we'd be like really worried as we read this. If we were reading Genesis for the first time, we'd be really worried at this point. And even though most of us do know how this ends, I think most of us have a sense of where the story goes, and, well, we just read the passage together, so we do. But I trust that today's plot twist in the story of Abraham and Sarah and the way that this plot twist gets resolved will be an encouragement to us as as we reflect on, on God's power to do whatever he wants in spite of our best efforts to get in his way. And that's one of the great takeaways from today's passage. There's a few others, but let's start by just walking through the passage together. And uh, the outline, again, is pretty straightforward, just looking through the main beats of the passage. And the first, the first big step for us this morning, at the beginning of chapter uh, 20, is considering how Abraham stumbles in faith again. Chapter 20 verses 1 to 2. And our passage here begins with Abraham on the move again. It's a good reminder. He had, he had stayed for, for a fair bit of time by the oaks of, of Mamre, but, but once again, he's on the move. He had no fixed address in the promised land. And he, his journey takes him to the south of the land, and he comes to Gerar, where an early Philistine king reigns. So he's referred to as a Philistine in, in uh, chapter 20... 
chapter 20, 21, he's referred to as a Philistine. Uh, what we know about the Philistines, they didn't actually show up till later. And so this could have been, the Philistines came from Crete is, is, is one of our understandings. So this could have been an early migration. Uh, it could have been referring to him as a Philistine since that's where they lived later. There's some question here. But, but he comes to Gerar where this early Philistine king reigns. And in verse 2, we hear these really disappointing words. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Okay, now we know what this is all about. Uh, the, the Genesis doesn't go into a lot of detail because we saw this happen already back in chapter 12. In case we forget, we're going to be reminded in a few verses. Sarah's really beautiful. Abraham was really worried that people were going to kill him to take his wife. And so he tells people that she's his sister so that they can just take her anyways, but at least he doesn't get killed. It's, it's hard to put a good spin on this. And now a question that you might be asking at this point, not only is, come on, are you serious, Abraham? Like for real? Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, Sarah is like 89 or 90 right now. At that age, Abraham is still paranoid that she's going to get stolen for her beauty. And the answer is obviously yes, she must have been remarkably beautiful. A couple of things we should be aware of, though, is that Sarah lived until she was 127. So very likely the aging process was slower. This would bring her relative age back. But something else to keep in mind here is that the two men who stole Sarah, Pharaoh and and Abimelech, were kings. And kings uh, at this time in history, they would not have been taking Sarah to be their one and only wife. They rather were adding Sarah to their their harems. Now it's it's gross and it's not right. I'm just saying that that's what they did. Kings collected beautiful women the way that the way that they might have collected other things, and they just that's just what they did, and they thought that they could do that, and it was for their own enjoyment. It was just to show off. Think of Solomon's thousand thousand wives or. Uh, some collection of wives and concubines. And so if a king saw a woman that he thought was particularly beautiful, he could just take her and, and add her to his collection, for, for lack, of a better, lack of a better phrase. And so it's not as if Pharaoh and Abimelech saw Sarah and thought, man, that's the girl of my dream. She's the one and only for me. That, that's not how they thought. Rather, they thought, wow, that's a particularly beautiful, in Abimelech's case, 90-year-old. Let's add her to the harem. Okay, now again, I'm not saying this is good. This is not good at all. But this just helps us understand a little bit of, of, what's, of what's going on here. And sure enough, that's what happened. Verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. Abraham once again tells a lie, or at least a white lie. And he lets Sarah be taken into this vulnerable situation. Instead of telling the truth and being willing to die if needs be to protect her. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm getting pretty frustrated with the men in Genesis throwing their wives or their daughters in harm's way in order to save their own skin, right? Abraham, Lot, they're doing the same thing. And this is Abraham's second time doing this. And, and so this, this should be frustrating us. We should realize this, this is not okay, But it's even more of a problem this time around because God has specifically promised that Abraham would have a son 
by Sarah, and he specifically told him it would happen in a year's time, and, and now Sarah is, is being taken by this king and is living in his harem. So the clock is ticking, ticking the plot is, is thickening, and, and we're getting so close to the finish line, and it looks like Abraham has gone and just ruined everything, like a runner who's just about at the finish line, and then just like sits down and eats a sandwich. Like that's, that's, that's what this looks like. After all these years of waiting, Abraham has no chance to have a son through Sarah if she's now in the harem of of some other king. Abraham should have trusted God and thought, God promised me a son through Sarah, so that's going to happen. So nothing bad that people can do is going to get in God's way. Abraham did this other times. We're going to see in a few chapters that, that there were other times where he displayed an incredible faith and had the ability to reason and say, no, like if God promised this, then this is going to happen. But here, he doesn't do that. He gets afraid, he lost, he loses faith, and he lets Sarah get taken. And now, God's promise appears to be in danger, like major danger. How in the world is God's promise to give Abraham a son through Sarah actually going to happen now well if you're reading Genesis for the first time I would encourage you by saying that if God is powerful enough to give Sarah a baby at 90 when her husband's 100 then don't you think he's powerful enough to get Sarah out of Abimelech's harem and sure enough that's what he does verses 3 to 7 just like Abraham had to step in to rescue Lot so God steps in to rescue Abraham from this situation that he got himself into as, as God rebukes Abimelech in verses 3 to 7. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night. By the way, this is the first time in the Bible that God communicates to someone in a dream, which he does multiple other times. This is the first time, and it's to this pagan king. And he came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, imagine these words from God to you, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. So Abraham was too afraid to tell this to Abimelech, so God tells Abimelech, that's a married man's wife you took, and so you're under the death penalty right now. Verse 4 and 5 are are really interesting because they show Abimelech responding to God in a surprising way. So one of the things we find out right away in verses 4 and 5, Abimelech had stayed away from Sarah thus far, and, and then he goes on to plead with God. And listen to how he pleads with God in verse 4. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Wasn't Abraham just doing this with Sodom in the last chapter? Lord, for, if there's 50 righteous, will you destroy them? Pleading that God would, would be just. And, and Abimelech is doing that now. Will you kill an innocent people? Then in verse 5, he argues that he didn't do anything wrong as far as he knew. I mean, he just thought she was free for the taking, and so he took her. That's what kings did. He didn't know she was married. And and God is not um, putting his stamp of approval on this practice of just kings taking beautiful women for themselves, but he, he is acknowledging that Abimelech correctly didn't know that she belonged to another man. Verse 6, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
God knew all of this. God saw all of this. God kept Abimelech from doing anything wrong with Sarah. And so, so this is interesting. When God said to him, you are a dead man, what he, what he actually meant was, you will be a dead man if you don't change your course and do what I tell you to do. So God does this multiple times in the scriptures where he makes a statement that sounds like it's game over, but he, he's actually giving that person a chance to respond in order that that course may change. So think, he tells, he tells the people of Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you in 40 days. Well, he's actually giving them a chance to respond so that he doesn't destroy them. He tells Moses, get out of my way that I might destroy the people of Israel. He actually says that so that Moses would intercede, so that he wouldn't destroy them. He says to his disciples, you give them something to eat so that they would say, all we've got is a few loaves and fish, so that he would do the miracle. Okay, so this is just a some of you Bible college students know what I mean by hermeneutical principle here. It means how we interpret the Bible is that, is that God will sometimes make these very uh, black and white statements that sound like it's game over. And he's saying it on purpose to engage with the people and to give them a chance to respond to him. And so he says to Abimelech, you're a dead man. So that Abimelech could, could do the right thing so that he wouldn't be, be a dead man. And saying, you will be a dead man if you don't change. And so what does, he, what does he want Abimelech to do? Verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet. Yikes, he didn't just steal any man's wife. He stole a prophet's wife. He is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, here it is, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. This is the first time Abraham's directly identified as a prophet, although we've seen him acting as a prophet right before now. We've seen the word of the Lord come to Abraham. We've seen him act like a prophet. Here he's actually referred to as a prophet. And so Abimelech now has a prophet's wife. What's he going to do? Well, our third step in the, in the passage, the Philistines fear God. This is really surprising. Abimelech's been warned. Maybe, maybe we could say he's actually been threatened. And look at how he and his men respond. Verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Hang on to that. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. That they're very much afraid. That's super important. So like tuck it away. And and this is going to be very ironic in a moment. But first, what happens? So they're afraid. So what does Abimelech do? Our fourth stop, Abimelech rebukes Abraham. Abimelech calls in Abraham to chew him out. So just, it's interesting here. God rebukes Abimelech, and now Abimelech rebukes Abraham. Verse 9, then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Uh, Abraham has nothing to say. And so Abimelech keeps going in verse 10, right? Remember, it reintroduces his speech, which means Abraham's silent. Verse 10, Abimelech says, what did you see that you did this thing? So in case you can't tell, Abimelech's not happy with Abraham. He's, 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 uh, he and Abraham are, are not having a great day together. And you would be unhappy too if you almost died for committing a sin that you didn't even know you were committing, but you did it because some other guy just lied to you for no good reason. 
And Abimelech's words here show very clearly Abraham was in the wrong here. There's no excuse for what Abraham did. Abraham doesn't think that, though. He thinks he's... He thinks what he's done makes total sense. And so our fifth stop in the passage, Abraham defends himself in verses 11 to 13. Once he regains his composure, verse 11, Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. So remember that thing I told you to tuck, tuck away? Abraham prejudged these people. And he just assumed they don't fear God. This is a big lesson of not jumping to conclusions, right? Because God comes and comes to Abimelech in this vision. And what do we read? That they feared God. They were afraid. They feared. And there was maybe not a fully formed fear of God like like Proverbs talks about. But they, they, they responded to God with proper fear. And Abraham just assumed that they wouldn't and explains, you know, basically I thought that you guys weren't going to fear God. And then he tries to cover his tracks by saying that it was just a white lie. Verse 12, or maybe a half truth. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. Okay, so we should take Abraham's words at face value. At this point in history, God had not given them laws against marrying close relatives and that's what he did he married his half-sister so you know he wasn't totally lying that's what he's trying to say like it was sort of true that she's my sister and in verse 13 he explains that it was nothing personal and when god caused me to wander from my father's house verse 13 i said to her this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So in other words, he's like saying to Abimelech, you know, don't take this personally, Abimelech. I don't trust God to take care of me anywhere I go. Not just with you. Uh, it's, I don't trust anybody. I, I think everybody's out to kill me, not, not just you. I don't think you're worse than anybody else. In other words, Abimelech, it's not you, it's me. Well, Abimelech, <laughs> Abimelech has a lot of power at this moment. He still has his wife. He's got the city. He's got the armed forces. He could get offended. He could get upset. He could t- tell Abraham to take off and never be seen again. But instead, Abimelech, responding to God, acts honorably. And he does everything he can to prove his innocence and to restore Sarah's honor. Verse 14, he gives Abraham a fresh supply of animals and people along with Sarah, gives him his wife back in verse 14. In verse 15, he invites Abraham to live wherever he wants in his land. Just think about that. Abraham had so many flocks and herds that him and Lot had to part ways, right? Like this, is a, this isn't like saying to your friend, you can stay the weekend. This is like saying to your cousin with 12 kids, you can move into my basement. Okay? This is like this is like a really generous offer. And then in verse 16, he tells Sarah that he's given Abraham a huge amount of money, a thousand pieces of silver. 
as a, as a gesture of her innocence. Okay, no, here's what we need to understand. Around this time in history, a, a Babylonian laborer, like just like a construction worker, made about half a shekel of silver a month. So this is like 166 years worth of, of salary for, for like a construction worker of the day. That's a, that's a ton of money. And, 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 and it seems like Abimelech gives this money to Abraham to, to, for Sarah to, to help change people's perception that she's not a disgraced woman, but she's a highly valued and a treasured and a pure woman. Men in the room, notice how hard Abimelech is working to honor and protect Sarah. Take notes and, and, and follow that example, not Abraham's. Abimelech is treating Sarah better than her own husband did. It's remarkable, right? And you have to wonder if he noticed it himself. You have to wonder if he, if he was like still having a hard time with the fact that he was treating Sarah so well when Abraham didn't. There's a little bit of a barb there in verse 16. He says, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a little bit of a dig, hey? Like, he didn't say your husband. You know, maybe did he do finger quotes? Oh, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Bit of sarcasm. Abimelech's probably still stinging from Abraham's lie. But his, his generosity here is amazing. He restores Sarah to Abraham, works to restore her honor and dig, dignity, and Abraham does pray for him as God told him he would, and he's restored. Verse 17 to 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So, disaster averted. The story of Sarah and Abimelech's house ends on this really ironic note. Think about this. What was, what was Sarah's big problem in life? She was barren. And as she spends time in Abimelech's household, God makes all of the women in that household barren. And as Sarah leaves, they become fertile again, which raises our hopes that maybe God is finally going to be able to do the same for Sarah. And sure enough, as we turn over to chapter 21, the news that we've been waiting for, I mean, here at EBC, we've been waiting for this for several months, and Abraham and Sarah had been waiting for for several decades, it finally arrives with the birth of Isaac. And there's four steps here as we consider the birth of Isaac. We see first the Lord's visitation in verse 1, chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. You getting this here? That this is God keeping his word, God doing what he said he was going to do. Who's the main character of this story? It's God. Don't miss that. He's delivering on his promises. He deserves the credit for what happens here. The Lord's visitation. Number two, the son's birth. And Sarah conceived, verse two, and bore Abraham a son in his old age 
at the time of which God had spoken to him. Sarah bore Abraham a son, not Abimelech. So now do you see why it was so important back in chapter 20 that that Abimelech didn't touch Sarah? It was so important because then it could have had some question, well, whose son was this? But no, he was so important for him to, to, to maintain her innocence so that we know this is Abraham's son. And sure enough, Isaac is born to this old couple right right when God promised that he would be. I just I, I just can't help but wonder like the the narrative in the Bible is often written just really to the point and it just communicates the facts but I just can't help but wonder what it must have been like for Sarah to be pregnant for the first time in her 90s. Like, did she get morning sickness? Did she notice the bump first, or did she, did she feel the little flutter of arms and legs moving around inside of her? What, what wonder must have filled Abraham as he placed his rough old hands on her rounded belly and felt little feet pressing back? Those months of pregnancy must have been filled with such a, a holy expectation. And what a flood of emotions must have swam through Abraham's heart as he heard his 90-year-old wife crying out in the pains of childbirth. He knew how many women died in that process back then. He knew how dangerous it was. Was his faith strong in those moments, trusting God to carry them through? And then the moment when those little lungs filled with air and Abraham and Sarah heard their son crying for the first time. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I would have loved to see the expression on Sarah's face as she looked at Isaac nursing for the very first time. How she would have been in such a surreal state of wonder. It's hard to describe. It's hard to imagine. But it all happened. There it was. Just like that. It's interesting. We're, we're going to get to Sarah's reflection here in a moment. Genesis really honors Sarah as it shares some of her reflection. But the first thing we hear about this child is actually not anything about the child, not anything about the child's mother, but rather the father's obedience. There's a pattern here, right? In the Bible, the fathers are, 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 are given primary responsibility for their children. And we see two stages of that here in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 Abraham called the name of the son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him. <laughs> Don't miss this. Right? Just celebrate this. Sarah bore him. What do you call him? Isaac, just like God commanded. Isaac means he laughs. And he gives him the name God said to give him. Then verse 4, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Isaac, covenant child, gets the covenant sign, welcomed as the son of promise, and his father obeys. And now finally, the miracle gets celebrated in verses 5 to 7. First, we're just reminded, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. In case you forgot that, 100 years old. And now honoring Sarah, we get these two just wonder-filled reflections from Sarah. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Not, not a, this isn't a laughing at, like, ha-ha, this is like a, oh, that happened, that's amazing. 
Remember, Isaac means he laughs. And, and, and initially, Sarah laughed with unbelief when God told her she'd have a son. But now she says, no, people are going to laugh as they hear, laugh with joy as they hear how God has kept his promise and given me this miracle baby. Finally, verse 7. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet, I've born him a son in his old age. Good question, Sarah. Who would have said? Who would have said that? Who would have guessed? God? That's who? God said this would happen, and God was right. Here you are, bearing Abraham a son in his old age. It took us a long time to get here, though, didn't it? Like we've reflected already, it, it maybe it felt like a long time for us walking through these chapters of Genesis over the last few months. Imagine how much longer it felt for Abraham and Sarah. Called to the land of promise, they had to wait 25 agonizing years before the promise was fulfilled. That's like from 1998 until now. Where were you in 1998? Take a moment and think. Some of you weren't born yet, and you get a pass on this. But those of you who are old enough to remember, where were you in 1998? Where'd you live? What were you doing? Think of how much has changed in the world since then. Think of how much has changed in your life since then. Now imagine... 1998, you got a promise from God, a direct promise from God. And it got repeated maybe two or three years later. And then a few years went by, nothing. And then God repeated the promise again. A few more years passed and you got one more reminder. Still nothing. And then finally, in 2023, it happens. It's not hard for us to see that God works on different timescales than we do. God's, God's watch runs at a different speed than ours does, so to speak. I mean, think of it. Those 25 years are nothing compared to the big story of redemption. Back in Genesis 3, he promised a snake crusher. And, and Adam and Eve, there's some hints when they named their first son, Cain, they were hoping he was going to be the snake crusher. Did they have any idea thousands of years would pass before God fulfilled that promise? And here we are still waiting. Maybe you're waiting this morning for an answered prayer. Maybe you're waiting this morning for a promise to be kept. Maybe you're still waiting for all things to work out for good through some tragedy that you've experienced in your life. And whatever you might be waiting for at a personal level, we are all groaning with creation which waits with eager longing for Jesus to come make all things new. To be a Christian means that you are someone who is waiting, as Romans 8.24 says, eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Christians are waiters, eager, waiters. 
And it's been a while, hasn't it been? Are, are you ready for Jesus to come back yet? I am. And the more that time passes, like Abraham, the easier it is for us to get impatient and to lose the plot, isn't it? And so we so need to be reminded from, from this story and from God's word that, that God's time scales are not ours. Peter reminds us of this, Second Peter 3, 8-9. Do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Don't think that. Come on, it's been 2,000 years. Where is Jesus? He's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So hear this. If God waits, he waits on purpose. He waits to save people. He waits to show mercy to more people. He waits to make sure that our eyes are on him, and he waits to bring himself more glory, which means that he waits to bring us greater joy. And then one day it happens. Sarah holds her child. And one day it's going to happen just like that for us. And some of us are going to find each other in the new earth and look each other in the eyes and say, we made it. Through many tribulations, we've entered the kingdom. And I wonder if we're going to gather around Abraham's feet and have him fill in some gaps in the story for us. And I wonder if we're going to hear him tell us that those 25 years don't really feel all that long looking back at them now. The birth of Isaac encourages us to wait with patience as we ask God to keep his promises, especially our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So I hope you can see here that we've moved into looking at truths for today from this passage. And we've just looked at the first one, which has to do with patience and waiting on God, waiting on God. There's a second one that we want to look at here, a truth for today that comes from this passage. If we shift our perspective just a little bit, but what this passage has to teach us about the nature of miracles, we can think of it this way. A 90 and 100 year old couple having a baby was a miracle. But the point of that miracle is not to teach us that every 90 and 100 year old couple are going to have babies. Okay, that would be a, a wrong way to apply this passage. The wrong way to apply this passage would be to go to the seniors' home and find every married couple and preach to them that, that they're going to have a baby. That's, that's not the point of, of it. Rather, the birth of Isaac is demonstration that if God wants to give an older couple a baby, he can do that. He can go right ahead and nothing is going to get in his way. So this is important because, because this perspective helps us to be both realistic and hopeful as we think about the impossible situations that, that we've got going on in our life. Okay, So realistic, as we remember, God doesn't do miracles all the time. Most 90 and 100 year old couples don't have babies. It's just, that's just a fact. That, that's what makes a miracle a miracle is that it doesn't happen every time. If it, ha- if it happened, it doesn't happen all the time. If a miracle happened like this all the time, then it wouldn't be a miracle anymore. It would just be just normal life. There's a reason that Isaac's birth takes up such a big chunk of scripture because it was a very rare event. So we want to be realistic about those things, but we also want to be hopeful because this has shown us that God can do that if he wants to. 
I mean, God can create a universe out of words. He can bring life from nothing. He can make a man from dust. He can give a baby to an older couple. He can give a baby to a virgin named Mary. He can bring that baby who's a man back from the dead if he wants to. God can do whatever he wants and nobody's going to stop him. Now, this is important because this helps us understand that if God doesn't do a miracle, it's not because he can't or it's not because he's forgotten about you. It's because he's got a, a good reason and a good purpose for doing things the way he's doing them. So maybe you've got some impossible situations in your life today. Maybe something in your body. Maybe something in your family. Maybe there's a hard heart that you're praying will soften. Maybe a roadblock in your life that, that you just can't get past. And the hopeful side knows that God could completely destroy that roadblock in a second if he wanted to. We hear the cries of baby Isaac and we remember nothing is impossible for this God. He can do whatever he wants and so we pray. The realistic side helps us recognize that God doesn't owe us a miracle. He may choose to sustain us and walk with us through that difficulty. He may carry us as we're weak and show his glory in the middle of the pain. Not because he can't do anything else, but because he's decided that that's the best way of doing things. Now maybe you're thinking, that, that actually sounds pretty hopeful to me. That realistic stuff actually sounds very hopeful. I can walk through suffering if I know that God is going to be with me. And, and, and if you're thinking that way, you're on the right track. Think of Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. The power of God to do miracles doesn't teach us that he owes us a miracle every second of every day. But it helps us see if he doesn't do a miracle. It's not because he can't. It's because he's up to something better. Finally, we learn some, some truths that have to do with God's absolute power over all things. Not just in performing miracles on occasion, but in purposefully ruling over all things and working out all things for his good purposes. There's a word for that. The word for God's power to work out all things to, according to his plan is providence. God's purposeful sovereignty over all things. So let me ask you a question. Where do we see God's power in today's passage? And the answer is not just in the birth of Isaac. It's also in God delivering Sarah from Abimelech's house. It looked like Abraham had wrecked everything, but Abraham stumbles. Once again, highlight God's power, prove this is about God, not Abraham. God stops Abimelech from touching Sarah, sends a disease uh, or some form of sickness on him and his household, speaks to him in a dream, sends Sarah back to Abraham with all of this extra wealth, and all of this is also a part of God's power and God's plan. God's at work directing all things, even Abimelech's heart. God's in charge of Abimelech's heart to bring his purposes to pass. And most of it doesn't qualify as a miracle, but it's still very much the work of God. Ephesians 1.11 speaks of God as him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is God, always at work. It's not like he does nothing until a miracle. He's always at work. 
Today's Palm Sunday. We remember the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. In those last days of Jesus, don't we see this truth on display? Think of all the human actors. You got Judas and all of his motivations. You got the high priests and the things that they want to do. You got the disciples and their bluster and cowardice bouncing around. You've got the crowds. Think of all the competing motives and, and plans and passions at work in all of those characters in that last week. And in all of it, the plans of God stand, right? Acts 427 to 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's Acts 427 to 28. So just like what God did with Abraham and Sarah and Abimelech, just like what God did with Jesus in his last week in Jerusalem, and just like he's doing in our lives. So when things feel like they're falling apart for you, when your foundations are feeling shaky and it seems like wicked people are doing their best to get in God's way, we can look back and look to his word and be assured that God is in control, reigning over all things with purposeful power. He's going to bring glory to himself. He's going to take care of his children If he's so ruled over those dark days in Jerusalem, if he's so ruled over Abimelech's house, and if he sent his son to go to the cross for you, if you've been bought with his blood and united to Jesus forever by his spirit, then he's not going to let things fall apart on you today. We can trust him. Father, thank you for the truths from this ancient and true book. I pray that as we see your power at work in the story of Abraham, that we would learn to patiently wait, that we would learn a proper outlook on on miracles, and that we would see your power to work at all times in all things to do exactly what you want to do. We praise you, God, that no human can get in your way when you want to do something. So I pray you'd find us trusting you, looking to the cross, delighting in our salvation, and boldly following you by faith, knowing that there's no safer place to be than in the footsteps of Jesus. Pray this for you his sake. Amen.